Welcome to episode 55 of EIU Panthers podcast. I'm your host, Rich Moser. This week, we visit with former Eastern Illinois men's soccer player, Neil Swindles. Swindles played soccer for the Panthers in the early 1980s, alongside some of the great goal scorers in program history. Swindles helped set up many of those goals as he ranked second on the EIU career's assist list. Since his playing days on the pitch, Swindles has gone on to a successful career as an airline pilot flying for United Airlines. Today, he talks about some of his favorite airports to fly in and out of, how he became a pilot, and he also takes us through some of his great memories of playing soccer here at Eastern Illinois. We are now in Season 2 of EIU Panthers Podcast. If you like this episode and want to hear others in our series, be sure to search EIU Panthers Podcast today wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and iHeartRadio Podcasts. Consolidated Communications is a proud sponsor of Eastern Illinois Athletics. Want to learn more about the future of broadband for your home or business? Then be sure to visit Consolidated.com today. Congratulations to Lindsey Carlson and Jamie Marcos from EIU Cross Country as both won their races in the season opening EIU Walt Crawford Open. They were also both named the Ohio Valley Conference Female and Male Runners of the Week this past week for those performances. Action continues for EIU teams this week as the fall sports schedules are in full swing. Make sure to stay up to date on the latest news, scores, stats, and much more concerning EIU Panthers athletics by visiting us at eiupanthers.com, the official athletic website of Eastern Illinois Athletics. You can also follow us on Twitter at EIU underscore Panthers. Now to this week's episode of EIU Panthers podcast as we visit with former EIU men's soccer player Neil Swindles. And welcome to another edition of EIU Panthers podcast. We're joined today by Neil Swindells, and he's going to correct me on that, and he'll he'll tell you why here in just a second. He was a former EIU men's soccer player who is from across the pond in England, and as I asked him right before we started how to pronounce it, he said there's an American pronunciation and an English pronunciation. So, Neil, welcome to the program, and I'll let you give the correct pronunciation. Well, thank you, Rich. Uh, yeah, where I'm from in Northern England, we uh, we have a very specific accent, and, and we call, call my last name Swindles with a dill at the end. Whereas here in Chicago or Illinois, it seems like with Wisconsin Dells so close and Dells on the end of the name, everybody says Swindells. So anytime I'm asking somebody to spell my name, I say Swindells, like Wisconsin <laughs> Dells. But uh, because otherwise they write it like I'm trying to fiddle them. Well, I do appreciate you joining me. I know you are a busy man. And one of the reasons we'll, we'll talk about the fact that you're busy is, is what your career is. You are a, an airline pilot. You, you've been with United Airlines for a, a number of years and as people will know, Eastern Illinois does not have an, an airline program. So I guess, how do you go from being a student at Eastern Illinois? You're, you're not the only one that I've met that that is an, a graduate of here that has gone into to become an airline pilot. How does that that process work for you? What what degree did you go here at Eastern that would eventually send you on that path? Well, the only thing that happened to me at Easton that sent me on that path was the girl that I met in my sophomore year that I ended up marrying, whose father was an airline pilot. Okay. 
that'll so, be the reason why. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I actually turned down an, an opportunity to go in the Royal Air Force in England to come to Eastern. Um, seemed like a big adventure at the time to come to a, a foreign country, um, do a degree program while I was playing soccer, which was my passion at the time. And so it was an opportunity I didn't want to uh, pass up. And I got a finance degree. <laughs> I got a finance degree at Eastern. Um, when I graduated, I played professional soccer for a little while. But then I, uh, I was a financial analyst in the city in Chicago. And while I was there, I wanted to learn to fly because it was always been a passion. And uh, because of uh, my wife's father, uh, he knew a few people as far as getting into aviation. And I eventually asked him, well, how do, how do all your friends send their kids to, uh, to flight school? Are, Mr. Rich, can I help you? Sounds like you're the busy guy, Rich, not me. Yep, I'm, <laughs> I apologize for that. It's Zoom is a wonderful technology. For those that, that'll be listening to this, they heard my, my phone ring in the background there. I have a phone, for all the modern technologies in the world, I haven't figured out a way to turn off the phone when I'm doing the Zoom. So <laughs> it's, it's not a problem for me whatsoever. So, uh, but anyway, uh, my finance degree at uh, East, Eastern, uh, I eventually was a financial analyst in the city in Chicago and I wanted to learn to fly. And my father-in-law um, talked to a few people at uh, United Airlines and asked them, you know, where did their kids go to fly? And they all said, oh, well, if he wants to be a pilot, then they should go to Ember Riddle. Well. At the time, I didn't think I did want to be a pilot, but uh, but once I started looking into it and I saw the quality of the life, et cetera, et cetera, um, I decided to quit. Up. We both decided to quit our jobs in Chicago, moved down to Florida, and I went to flight school in Florida. And this was right after the crash of 1987. I don't know if you remember the stock market crash in 1987. And so the finance job seemed very tenuous at the time, and airline jobs seemed like... Uh, they were kind of a forever job, so made the plunge. And I, you say that now, but as, as the world has changed and, and COVID has probably really put a damper on, on the airline industry in particular, that, that's an airline, an industry where people are going to be packed in close quarters and, and with concerns of virus spread and things like that. I guess, give us from your firsthand experience, how did you go through that and how did the airline make sure that, that you guys were still going to be financially stable when this pandemic kind of hopefully there's a light at the end of the tunnel of it? Well, when it first happened, of course, um, I think from the, the administration of the country down to the airlines, everybody was not quite sure how bad it was going to be. Um, but from a very, very early in the pandemic, when it became clear it was going to be a big problem, United Airlines was quite proactive in securing the Johnson & Johnson vaccine for the employees. So I was actually vaccinated uh, last March okay. fairly, fairly quickly. And, um, you know, they were encouraging people to get the vaccine as quickly as possible so that they were vaccinated, of course. And, uh, and then at the airline, all the passengers have to be uh, masked at all times once they're at the airport. And of course, uh, all the employees, the same thing. So as soon as you basically come onto the airport grounds, you have to wear a mask. Now, in the cockpit, when the door is closed, we can actually take the mask off as long as we've both been vaccinated and we're both comfortable with that uh, because, of course, we have a lot of radio communications to do. Yep. So normal, normally, uh, we will be unmasked in the cockpit. Um, but 
we also have our own air supply up there and, and with the HEPA filters on the airplane. Uh, nobody has too many concerns about that. Um, as far as the industry goes, I think the government stepping in and giving billions of dollars to the airlines to try and keep employees occupied, excuse me, employed um, and occupied. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and uh, 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 really helped. Um, there were pay cuts involved because we get paid a, a kind of different way than most people. We have a we have a guarantee, and then we have an hourly wage. So. We all went down to our guaranteed pay rate, which is obviously smaller than the pay rate that you normally earn every every month when you're flying. Um, but that enabled us to uh, to keep as many people employed as possible, so that hopefully the pandemic pandemic was going to be fairly short lived and we could rebound fairly quickly. As we've uh, discovered, it was it was fairly rampant in the summer, and uh, now we're seeing this uh, the second, possibly third spike now. Um, Travel is dropping off a little bit, but it always drops off in September because, of course, kids are going back to school. And this is generally a quiet time before the holidays. Thanksgiving will pick up, Christmas will pick up, and that will die again until spring break. Okay. Now, anybody that's been to an air, airport before, or just kind of even in, in Charleston, the, the small little airport out there, they know that there are a variety of signs, sizes of planes. I'm assuming you have to have a special licensure, and what what is kind of your particular maybe specialty if you call it for the type of plane that you do fly so to fly at the airlines you need an atp which is kind of like the phd of flying i guess okay. um, of, of, of pilot qualifications but then once you've got your atp that's air transport pilot certification which you need about 1500 hours there's a, there's a few um there's been a few law changes recently but okay. basically you need 1500 hours of flight time um, once you have that to fly a specific airplane at an airline, you need what's called a type rating on that specific airplane. In fact, right now I fly a 737 and at the end of uh, September, I'm going to school to fly the 787, the new Dreamliner. Okay. And, and that will be about five weeks of school in Denver. Okay. And then that will give me a type rating to fly the 787. And in the airlines, you only fly one type of airplane at a time. So. While my flight certificate says I can fly seven or eight, I'm qualified to fly seven or eight. Um, the airlines and the FAA require recency of experience just so that you're very familiar. And uh, so to do that, uh, you have to stay current. And so the airline only keeps one uh, one airplane current, uh, one, a pilot current on one airplane at a time. Okay. And then my other question with that is, I I know there, there are domestic and there are international flights do you are you do you get certified to fly both of those and then like i guess the follow-up question that is have you flown both of those or have you really just been situated flying domestically so i started out domestically on a domestic airplane but domestic for the airlines includes canada mexico the caribbean and central okay. america okay so there's some international in that it's not crossing oceans uh, for that, you need the bigger airplanes. So I've actually flown the 727, 737, 747, 757, 767. I'm about to go to the 787, and I've also flown the Airbus A319 and 320. Of those, the 757, 67, and 747 are considered international airplanes. They can fly over the oceans. Okay. The others, the others would be considered domestic. So I've done a little bit of both. 
Okay. And then do you, you're based in Chicago. I've heard you say that, even though you've, you've mentioned you guys lived in Florida for a short period of time to get your, to get your licensure there. Is there a, and that is, I'm guessing, based on the fact that United is somewhat based, has a hub in Chicago, or do you, do pilots kind of live anywhere they want and they just jump on a plane and then get to where they have to get to start their, their routine? So we have both. We have, uh, we have what's called pilots who live in domicile. And that means within driving distance of the airplane. We have pilots who commute who have to get in an airplane. Um, my wife uh, is from Arlington Heights, and uh, which is 10, 15 minutes from O'Hare. That's where her father settled when he was a pilot. Okay. And so it was very easy to move to Chicago. It's what we knew. It's what my wife knew. And we actually live in Arlington Heights, uh, just a couple of blocks from her parents. Okay. So I'm about, about a 15 minute drive from the airport. But um, in Chicago, I think roughly about half the pilots are commuters. And what helps is, of course, uh, Chicago being such a large hub for United, pilots can get in from almost anywhere in the reasonable vicinity. We don't, we don't have very many people who commute from west of the Mississippi. Okay. But uh, because if you're west of the Mississippi, you probably go to Denver or maybe the West Coast domiciles. But, um, I mean, we have catchment in Chicago from Florida to uh, Toronto, Canada to Maine. Um, probably as far west as Denver, a few people in Denver, because Denver is a United domicile, but it doesn't have a lot of airplanes there. We fly basically all the airplanes in Chicago. Now, and this will have you throw a little bit of favoritism here. Is there a, a favorite airport that you like flying in and out of? I, I can imagine that they all have some, some pluses and some minuses based on geography, busyness, those types of things. Um. Well, when it comes to favorites, there's some are some are favorites because of the geography and and what it looks like flying in. Some are favorites because of the challenge, and uh, and then some are favorites because you've uh, spent some nice times there. Yep. So um, so um, as far as challenging airports that are favorites, I'd say LaGuardia in New York, uh, San Diego out west, and also Washington National. Uh, in Washington, D.C. Those are probably the three most challenging domestic airports. Now, internationally, it's a different kettle of fish because uh, internationally, you can find all sorts of mountains here, there, and everywhere. Um, in fact, Jackson Hole uh, and Reno in, in uh, the United States actually have mountains on the final approach, just off the final approach. So oh, wow. they're, they're, they're airports that you have to be very careful of. But uh, um, as far as favorites to fly into, I like flying into LA, uh, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, San Diego, the West Coast airports. Generally, the weather is favorable. Um, you get great views coming down from altitude, and they're nice, long, scenic approaches with the mountains and the ocean. And it sounds like I was going to ask a follow-up question. I think I, you may have answered it is, do you kind of have a, a routine that you would fly, you know, DC to Chicago, New York to Chicago, but it, it sounds like by the airport you routed off is that you guys may fly a variety of routes on a variety of weeks. So what happens is every month the company produces uh, trips. They can be one day trips, two day trips, three day trips, or four day trips. And, and then every month we bid on those trips. So everything is based on seniority. So if you're the number one 737 captain in Chicago, you get your choice of whatever 737 flag has been built yeah. by the company. 
and then we just go down the list from there. And, uh, and so seniority is a big thing. Um, and people will stay on an airplane to maintain their seniority and their quality of life. Um, because not only is it the places that you fly and the kind of trips you fly, it's the choice of days off too. So if you want, if you, you know, an airline is a 24, seven, 365 operation. So you can find yourself in a hotel in Des Moines on Christmas Eve, and you're there all day Christmas day because the airline doesn't want to fly out on Christmas day because nobody wants to leave on Christmas day. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I found myself uh, all over the country and in different countries over the holidays, Christmas, new year. Um, I spent uh, new year in Aruba one time with my son. Uh, I've spent Christmas, uh, in Seattle, Des Moines, all these places. So your schedule is, uh, very dependent on the fleet and also dependent on your seniority and those those trips they change every single month now you mentioned and it, it's probably quality of life you're probably very fortunate in some of the times where you've had to be away from home is that you have a very understanding spouse and the fact that she grew up around that you mentioned her father is kind of got you inter interested in into the business does she enjoy that? Are you able to take her occasionally with that? Or has she had enough of the travel with growing up around it? So um, she obviously traveled a lot when she was younger because uh, travel was a lot easier. And to be honest, um, you basically, uh, well, we're both in our 50s. So we're going back 40, 40, 45 years now. But uh, back then, you basically showed up to the airport in your dress clothes and you could get on an airplane and go anywhere. So they would go into Hawaii every year and Rome and Paris and stuff like that. Um, things are a little different now. Um, it's a little more difficult to get on the airplanes because of yield management computers and trying to right size airplanes to passenger loads and stuff like that. Plus the fact that uh, our children are 23 and 25 now. So for much of the last 25 years, uh, she's been raising children while I've been on the road. So um, she's been on a few trips with me, but um, we're hoping that that will increase now that I'm about to go to the 787, go to some international destinations and our children are graduated. Now, as you mentioned, we'll, we'll kind of one of the reasons, the other reasons we'll have you on here is a, a former soccer player here at Eastern Illinois, came over from originally from England, from Manchester, if, I, if I'm correct, if the media guide from the 1980s is correct, it has Manchester, but I know sometimes those things are, are not 100% accurate. At the time, I know Eastern was recruiting internationally. You would have been a hand, one of a handful of players and international players on the roster. What was attractive to you, I guess, how did you get recruited to come play soccer at Eastern Illinois back in the, in the 1980s? So it was quite by chance, um, as is often the case with these things. Um, I was waiting outside the office of my high school soccer coach to see him. And just so happened there was another gentleman there to see him. Uh, we struck up a conversation while we were waiting and he asked me uh, what I was doing. And I said, well, I'm the captain of the soccer team and I'm just, I just need to talk to him about something about an upcoming game. He goes, oh, you know, are you interested? You know, are you any good? And at the time, at the time I was actually um, uh, playing with some professional teams in England. Um, we have a slightly different system there, a slightly different farm system. So when you're in high school, um, you're, you're able to sign for a club uh, as a as a high school player, but it's not it's not considered a professional form. But but they take care of you. They pay all your expenses and buy your cleats and all that kind of stuff. And so 
um, we struck up a conversation and he asked me, would I be interested in coming to the States to play? And of course, I'd known this man about 15 minutes. And, <laughs> and I was like, uh, I'm going to need a little more information than yeah. that, especially for my parents. So um, he got in touch with Shellis, Shellis Heinemann, the coach at the time. Um, Shellis uh, got in touch with me. He asked me if I had any press clippings or videos and stuff. I had a couple of scrapbooks of press clippings. Um, so I sent him the scrapbooks and um, we started a communication and he had me play in a couple of games with this coach that he knew because the coach in England, um, Shellish used to run a summer camp in, I think, Vail, Colorado. And, uh, and this coach used to go over and be one of the coaches that helped him run the soccer camp. Okay. So I played in a couple of games with, the, with this coach from England and he obviously liked what he saw. I scored quite a few goals. And, um, and then Shellis called me with an offer to, to come to Eastern. Um, he tricked me a little bit in, in saying, you know, I, I was like, well, where is it? And he said, oh, he's just south of Chicago. Everything's well, just I, south I, of Chicago, as you know. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So, I, you know, my parents were like, well, where are you going? Oh, just south of Chicago. Just, and, and I looked on the map, and of course, the U.S. is so big. Yeah. I was like, yeah, there it is, just south of Chicago. Little did I know, it was a three-and-a-half-hour, four-hour drive. But, um, and at the time, um, the soccer team had just come second or at the, I think they were third in the tournament yep. in the nation, yep. but I, I think, um, I think Alabama A&M was second and they ended up having to forfeit, forfeit for some reason. So I think, I think Easton got pushed up to second in the nation. Um, I knew there were, uh, there were some English players there. Uh, I knew the standard obviously was quite high and, um, and it was an opportunity, like I said earlier, that I felt I couldn't give up on. Um, if, if it didn't work out, which sometimes it doesn't, you know, I could always get on the plane and come home and nothing ventured, nothing gained. And, uh, and I had a lot of irons in the fire back in England. Uh, I turned down a professional soccer contract in England. I had the Air Force. Um, I had university place in England. So it wasn't like I was going home to nothing. It's just that... Uh, it seemed like the Eastern opportunity was kind of time critical. And uh, of course I never looked back. Now still, I, I'm still here. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've met uh, coach Hyman Shellis. Uh, he's a great individual. Actually, when we started our podcast last year, he was my, my first guest on it. Um, he did it by phone. You're, you're doing it by zoom. So you're ahead of coach Shellis by, from a technology standpoint is, <laughs> and, and it's interesting how you say you, re, you recruited by press clippings. It's amazing how, how, technology and things that have changed the way that sports are done and, and, and players are recruited nowadays. I, as you look back on it, you, you, you played soccer back in the day. Have, have you noticed that you feel like the game has changed or you, I know we talk about recruiting has changed, but do you feel mm -hmm. like the game itself has changed? Absolutely. I think the game is quicker. Uh, the fitness levels are, are beyond anything from 20, 30 years ago when I played. Um, I think the, the level of technique hasn't necessarily changed. There's only so many things you can do with a soccer ball, but I think the speed of the game, the physicality of the game, the fitness levels have changed. Uh, I, think it's, uh, I think it's getting quicker, uh, more physical, and when I say physical, I don't mean the challenges. I think, I think the physicality of uh, tackles and stuff has, been, has, has come down dramatically. 
but I think the physicality needed to play the game has, uh, has increased dramatically. Now, you were a successful player here. I, I know you, you talked about you, things may not have worked out here for you. They did work out here for you. Uh, several times an all-conference player, you are second all-time in career assist at EIU. Do you, a lot of times, the, leading, the people in the assist are assist, the term itself talks about, you help the other players around you become better. Is that how you viewed yourself as a player, that you were a guy that made the other guys around you better? Or did it just so happen that the other guys scored when you gave them the ball and never gave it back to you? <laughs> well, you know, I walked into a very good team. It, you know, it, it wasn't like uh, I came in as some kind of star in the team. I mean, we had Ajiman Prempe, uh, Andre Adade, uh, Damian Kelly, George Huff, we had all these players who were who were great players in their own right. So uh, my freshman year was a case of can I break into the team? And if so, where? Because uh, these players were top players, uh, uh, all American type players. And um, and so anything I could do to assist the team was obviously what I was willing to do. Um, over time, that changed to where I became one of the focal points of the attack and was scoring a lot of goals. But, but just just you know, a part and parcel of the game of being a forward is you can't always be the one to score. And so you know, obviously uh, create an assist for other players. And, and we always had good teams. So uh, finding an open player who could score a goal was, was never, never really an issue. So... Well, I'd like to think I made those other players better. I'm not sure I did. Most of those players were very good in their own right. Uh, I think a lot of those players made me better by giving me the ball in situations where I could score or I could uh, give an easy assist. Now, I always try to ask, and I'm gonna, it's been a number, number of years you've mentioned since you played soccer, but every time I, I see former athletes kind of get together with other athletes or they start to think about these things, there's always a story or a, a moment that kind of, comes back up is when you're able to ever get together with any of your former teammates, are there, is there a game or a, a moment that you kind of remember that stands out as part of your EIU soccer career? Boy, um, there's, there, there's a few games. I mean, I mean, there were some good rivalries. We had a, a pretty big rivalry with uh, St. Louis university. Uh, we had some barnstorming games with them. Um, I think one of the games that stands out for me was my freshman year against, uh, I think it's like Oakland College in Michigan. And the only reason we played them was because Shellis knew the coach there because it was kind of out of conference and this, that, and the other. But it was the first game that I started and I scored. So that was obviously a standout for me because I felt like, okay, well, I, I made my mark on the team. We played Air Force Academy uh, my first year. Out at, out at the Air Force Academy, I had never played soccer at altitude ever. I mean, England is fairly flat. I had no idea that the ball could move as quickly as it did. Trying to time the ball was just, I mean, it was laughable. Um, so, you know, that was obviously very memorable. And it was my first trip with the team. Uh, we went out to Onyenta in New York for the uh, Hall of Fame uh, tournament. Uh, that was very memorable. First time I'd been to New York, so that was a big deal. Of course, writing home, taking lots of pictures. Yeah. Um, but as far as on the field of play, um, boy, uh, the, the most memorable game? Mm, 
I don't know. We, you know, it seemed like every game was a big game because we were, we were always vying to get into the, the tournament and, um, we had a lot of conference games, uh, you know, there were games where I'd score a hat trick or games where, you know, I'd squeak, I squeaked the, the, the goal that won the game one zero. I remember a game against Cleveland state, uh, uh, at Eastern where it was a really, really tight game. And, um, I had actually been benched for that game for, <laughs> for uh, I actually got benched for daring to go to the toilet while we were doing the pre-game briefing. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> which is amusing now, but wasn't yeah. very funny at the time. But, uh, you know, the coach put me on for the last 15 minutes to see if I could turn the game and score the goal that had us win the conference. So, you know, just the little things like that. But I, I think more than the games themselves, you know, it's, it's the people you know, you spend four years in the team, you see players graduate, you see new players come in while you're there. And, um, you know, you, you create relationships, you, you lose friends that you sometimes catch up with, and then new friends come along. That, and, and believe it or not, some of the people who showed up at the games consistently for the four years that I was there are still friends today, just because they, they, they weren't big soccer players. But, you know, we'd go to Marty's after a game and have a beer together and they'd want to talk about the game, but they weren't players themselves. They just were very interested in the program. And so um, more than more than a soccer memory, I think it's the memory of, of the personalities that came and went and uh, the overall experience. Because, uh, you know, 18 to 22, uh, those are big maturation years. And, and Easton was a great place to grow up. Well, those are great stories. We do appreciate your time. We've been joined by Neil Swindell, Dells, Dells, Dells. It's not Dells. Dells is Wisconsin. I'm Swindell. No, no. <laughs> I, I say Neil Swindells. Americans generally say Neil Swindells. We're going to go with Swindells because this is our guest and, and he, he is the guest. Former EIU soccer player, now an airline pilot with United Airlines, our guest on EIU Panthers podcast. Neil, we do appreciate your, your time today. Best of of luck and always safety on on your flights when you make those it's um i always marvel at the fact that you can get a, a piece of metal that weighs more than you could ever think of into the air from one place to another very safely and it, we're always thankful when, when pilots are able to do that for us well thank you very much and uh it, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you i have nothing but fond memories of eastern so uh, thank you very much for getting in touch with me i appreciate it. thank you thank you Wow, <laughs> wow,